أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters and welcome to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad so the Prophet ﷺ, after spending a short period of time in Quba, he moves into the city of Medina. As we mentioned in our last episode, everyone was eager to host the Prophet ﷺ, but the Prophet uh, essentially told them that I will be hosted by whoever, whomever's home the, the camel uh, rests at. So the camel, the she-camel, rested in front of the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, who was one of the poorest Muslims in the city of Yathrib. And the Prophet as we mentioned in our, in our last episode, he stays with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari for several months, waiting for the masjid, his masjid to be constructed and also waiting for his own place of residence to be built. So after the Prophet ﷺ settles in the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, the Muslims start to congregate at an empty lot next to Abu, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari's home. This empty lot was a place where they would gather camels you know, it was similar to, uh, you know, a place where they would park uh, their camels. And because it was a vast open space, when they would pick dates, they would place the dates on the ground uh, to allow them to dry. So in this lot, the Muslims would come together and the Prophet would lead them uh, in prayer. So the Prophet ﷺ, what he does next is that he asks As'ad ibn Zurara, uh, his famous companion, to purchase this plot of land which is next to the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. So they do so, they purchase the land and they start to build the foundation of what is known today as Masjid and Nabi So they build the foundation of the Masjid with rocks and bricks. And there are stories about you know, how it was built and how the companions of the Prophet would come together and they would recite you know, lines of poetry about, about the Akhirah as they would build. According to some narrations, the, the masjid was built uh, in stages, meaning it was built, the foundation was built, and then the final touch was that they would put uh, palm fronds on top of uh, the building to provide them shade uh, from the sun. So the, the building, the construction of the Prophet's masjid is now underway, and historical reports mention that it took about 10 months for the masjid to be completed. So construction began in Rabi'ul Awwal, which is, you know, shortly, which is when the Prophet uh, arrived, the month in which he arrived in Medina. And it continued up until 
the, the month of Safar in the year 200 after the Hijrah. So about 10 months until uh, Masjid al-Nabi was completed. Now during this time, during the construction of the Masjid, a famous companion of the Prophet passes away. As'ad ibn Zurara, who if, we, if you recall brothers and sisters, he had come to Mecca when the Prophet was in Mecca uh, to receive some assistance from Quraysh to put an end to the, the, uh, the, the civil war that had broken out between Al-Aws and Khazraj. Quraysh, they declined to help and then he ends up meeting the Prophet and then he becomes a Muslim. So he was actually the first man to embrace Islam from the people of Yathrib. As'ad ibn Zurara passes away during this 10-month period. Now, the death of As'ad ibn Zurara was used as fodder by the hypocrites. So there were already munafiqeen, there were hypocrites in Medina. And when As'ad ibn Zurara passed away, they started to say that, you know, if Muhammad is a real prophet, his companion wouldn't have died. I mean, this is a very silly thing to say. But nonetheless, they tried to use the death of As'ad ibn Zurara to cast doubt in the hearts of the Muslims that Muhammad is a legitimate prophet. Now, As'ad, of course, he is from the Ansar. So we know now that the, the companions of the Prophet are, are comprised of two major groups. You have the Muhajireen, the emigrants, and then you have the Ansar. The first Ansari to die in the history of Islam is As'ad ibn Zurara. And he is the first one to be buried in Jannatul Baqir, a very uh, prominent, a very respected uh, figure in the early history of Islam. The Prophet ﷺ loved him uh, very much and he performed Salatul Mayyit on his body and he was buried in uh, the Baqi' cemetery. Now, looking at the masjid of the Prophet, the way that the masjid was built, so the masjid itself was first built, and the muhajireen, so the Ansar, they already have their, their place, their homes. The Muhajirin were homeless. Many of them were living in the homes of the Ansar. Now, some of the Muhajirin, what they did was they started to build their homes adjacent to the masjid, meaning they literally built their homes attached to the masjid, such that one of the walls would be the wall of the masjid. So, if you think of it, they would build these small uh, apartments. The front door would open up into the, the street, and the back door would open directly into the Masjid of the Prophet. So these houses that were built by the Muhajireen, they shared a wall with the Masjid, and the, the back door opened into the Masjid. And later on in the, in the seerah, we will see that there is a command Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals to the Prophet that 
all of these doors need to be closed permanently. Because some of the Muslims, you know, they would be in a state of janaba and their doors would be open and technically, you know, they would be considered uh, to be inside of the masjid. So the order is issued by the Prophet that all of the doors that open into the masjid need to be closed permanently except for the door of Ali and Fatima. And inshallah, uh, later on we'll shed some more light on that incident. And we actually have, when you look at the historical accounts, we have detailed records of the owners of these houses and the chain of custody. So we have you know, companions who own these homes and then their children who inherited the properties. And so we have the chain of custody, the ownership, until these homes were finally raised and incorporated into the mosque. So if you go to Masjid al-Nabi today, these living quarters are now actually inside of the mosque because of the uh, expansion and the renovations that had taken place. So the masjid is completed. Now the Muslims have a masjid in, in Medina, a gathering place, a place of community, a place where they can come together and listen to the Prophet speak, a place where everyone can come together and enjoy the beauty of this new Islamic brotherhood. The next thing that happens, and this perhaps happens uh, during the, uh, the building of the, the masjid, and this is the legislation of the adhan and the iqama. Now we know that in our fiqh, it's highly recommended to recite the adhan and the iqama before we commence with the daily prayers. Now the adhan, according to narrations, was legislated during the first year after the hijrah. So it seems that the prayer had already been mandated, but the call to prayer had yet to be introduced. Now the question here is, how was the adhan ordained? Was the adhan, was the call to prayer divinely ordained? Or was it the result of dreams or consultation? For many of you, for those of you who have seen the movie, The Message, you might recall that scene where, you know, after the, they built the masjid, there is a discussion between the Prophet and the companions about what is the best way to call people uh, to the prayer. There's a narration mentioned by Ibn Hisham. And he reports that there was a discussion between the Prophet and his companions. And of course, we... Shias, we follow we the followers of Ahlul Bayt, we reject uh, these narrations and I'll explain why and, and I'll I'll share with you some of the ahadith where the Imams actually respond uh, to these claims. So Ibn Hisham reports that there was a discussion about the best way to call people to prayer. So now that they have a masjid and there's a there's a, a, a viable Muslim community and the Muslims want to pray together, what's the best way to call them to prayer, to have them congregate? So 
they thought, some of the companions thought that, you know, why don't we do what the Jews do? Why don't we use a horn like the Jews? Or a bell like the Christians? And according to this narration by Ibn Hisham, the Prophet ordered a bell to be carved. Now, evidently, this, this bell was being carved out of wood of some sort. And then, Abdullah ibn Zayd, who was one of the companions of the Prophet, he was among the Ansar. He comes to Rasulullah and he says to him, Ya Rasulullah, I saw a dream where a figure was dressed in green, perhaps it was an angel, and the, this figure taught me the adhan as a better alternative to the bell. So according to this narration, the Prophet was inclined to adopt the idea of using a bell to call Muslims to prayer. Abdullah ibn Zayd, he says to the Prophet, that, no, I had a dream, I have a better idea, Ya Rasulullah. The idea of the adhan. So Abdullah ibn Zayd, according to this narration, teaches the Prophet the adhan. And the Prophet says that this is a wonderful idea. Go and teach Bilal. And then Umar ibn al-Khattab, he hears this and he said, SubhanAllah, I also had the same exact dream. This is what is reported by Ibn Hisham. Other narrations mention, other narrations found in Sunni sources mention that a multitude of companions, other dozens of other companions, they saw the same dream. So the Prophet didn't see such a dream. Dozens of companions saw the dream and the Prophet adopted uh, the Adhan because of the dream that they had. Now interestingly, there is no mention of a dream as being the source and the basis of the Adhan in even Sahih Bukhari and Muslim. Bukhari and Muslim do not mention any such uh, incident. Ibn Hisham also reports a second story in which the Prophet consulted with people and Umar, and this is what, uh, what I, if I recall correctly, this is what is mentioned in the, in the movie The Message, that it was Umar who suggested using a human voice to call people to prayer, that we shouldn't imitate the Jews and the Christians, and the Prophet accepted the counsel, he accepted the advice of Umar, and then he instructed Bilal to give the Adhan. Now, and these reports became widely circulated, especially after the Prophet. Now, luckily, we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, we have the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. So we are able to, to check the authenticity of such stories by asking the Imams. And many of the companions of the Imams, they used to do this. They would hear something that happened during the time of the Prophet, which sounded dubious, and they would ask the Imam السلام, to verify if this, uh, this story was actually true or not. So there is a narration where there were a group of people who were discussing the Adhan in the presence of Imam al-Hasan al-Mujtaba, the second Imam of Ahlul Bayt and they mentioned this story of the dream of Abdullah bin Zayd. Imam al-Hasan 
he said to them that the matter, the issue of Adhan is more important than that. Meaning that Imam Al-Hasan is saying that Adhan, the call to prayer, is something that is too important for Allah to leave in the hands of the people. And therefore Imam Al-Hasan he says Jibra'il recited the Adhan in the heavens two lines at a time. This is why we have Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. It's recited two times, two lines at a time. And it was taught to the Messenger of God. Meaning, in the same way that Salah was legislated during the Mi'raj of the Prophet, Adhan was the same. The Adhan was also legislated in this way. It came from the heavens. It was not it was not adopted because of the dreams of, of companions. This issue was also brought up, and now I'm going to be sharing some narrations from Al-Kafi. This issue was also brought up to Imam Al-Husayn. So, a group of people, they approach Imam al-Husayn. So you see that this story had been passed on from generation to generation. And Imam al-Husayn, almost five centuries later, is addressing this fabrication, this fabricated story. So they say to Imam al-Husayn that people claim that this was legislated based on the dream of Abdullah ibn Zayd. Now look at the answer of Imam al-Husayn. And you can, you can hear the frustration and the anger of Imam al-Husayn. فَقَالَ الْحُسَيْنَ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ الْوَحْيُ يَتَنَزَّلُ عَلَى نَبِيِّكُمْ وَتَزْعُمُونَ أَنَّهُ أَخَذَ الْأَذَانَ عَنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بْنِ زَيْدِ Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam, he says, Revelation, wahi, comes down to your prophet. And you claim that the Prophet took the idea of Adhan, of the Adhan from Abdullah ibn Zayd. And Adhan, and the call to prayer, this is, The Adhan is the symbol of your faith. It's the symbol of your religion. Even non-Muslims know about the call to prayer. The call to prayer is very important. It's, it's the symbol of Islam. Allah is not going to leave something that is the face and the symbol of the religion to be decided by the companions. The narration says that Imam al-Husayn was angered by this assertion, this, this claim. Imam al-Husayn, he says, I heard my father Ali ibn Abi Talib say, يقول, Imam Amir al muminin he begins telling the story of the Mi'raj. Imam, he says, Allah, when the Prophet was on his ascension, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent an angel 
who had never been seen by creation. And nor will anyone see this angel after that moment. This was an angel that only the prophet saw and no one after him will see. فَأَذَّنَ That angel recited the adhan, meaning he recited each, each part of the adhan two times. And he recited the iqama. وَذَكَرَ كَيْفِيَّةَ الْأَذَانِ And he explained the, the method of performing the adhan, reciting the adhan. وَقَالَ جِبْرَائِيلٍ النَّبِيِّ And the Prophet, and Jibra'il then said to the Prophet, يَا مُحَمَّدْ هَكَذَا أَذِّنْ لِلصَّلَاةِ O Muhammad, recite the call to prayer in this way. So you see that the Prophet ﷺ is receiving the instructions on how to recite the adhan from Malaika, from Jibra'il, and ultimately from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a narration from Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam. And again, it could be that the adhan was taught to the Prophet on multiple times. You know, in the same way that Surah al-Fatiha was revealed to the Prophet more than once for emphasis, to highlight its significance. The adhan... It could be that it happened, uh, it was revealed multiple times. And especially uh, considering that the Prophet ﷺ embarked on multiple ascensions. We mentioned, some narrations mentioned that the Prophet went on Mi'raj over a hundred times. Imam al-Baqir, he says, لَمَّا أُسْرِيَ بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ إِلَى السَّمَاءِ فَبَلَغَ الْبَيْتَ الْمَعْمُورِ When the Prophet was... Uh, when he went, embarked on his ascension, he reached Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur. Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur is basically the Qibla, the Kaaba for the inhabitants of the heavens. وَحَضَرَةِ الصَّلَاةِ And the, the time of prayer had set in. فَأَذَّنَ جِبْرَائِيلُ وَأَقَامُ Jibra'il recited the Adhan. And Jibra'il recited the Iqama. فَتَقَدَّمَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ وَصَفَّ الْمَلَائِكَةُ وَالنَّبِيُّونَ خَلْفَ مُحَمَّدٍ So the Prophet came forward and the angels and all of the Prophets assembled behind the Prophet and he led them in salah. This narration is from Imam al-Baqir and it's found in Al-Kafi. There's another narration where and this is from Imam al-Sadiq where he says, لَمَّا هَبَطَ جِبْرَائِيلِ بِالْأَذَانِ when the, when the angel Gabriel descended to the Prophet, on the, upon the Prophet with the Adhan, كَانَ رَأْسُهُ فِي حِجْرِ عَلِي The Prophet, his head was in the lap of Ali. فَأَذَّنَ جِبْرَائِيلِ so, so again, this supports what I mentioned that the Adhan was revealed to the Prophet on multiple occasions. During Mi'raj and even on earth. So here Jibra'il is descending upon the Prophet and he's reciting the Adhan. And he recited the Iqama. وَأَقَامَ فَلَمَّنْ تَبَهَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ So the Prophet was sleeping in the lap of Amir al-Mu'mineen. The Prophet woke up. When he heard Jibra'il recite the Adhan, and what's interesting here, brothers and sisters, is 
that the Prophet, he turns to Imam Ali السلام, The Prophet, he asks Amir al-Mu'mineen, did you hear? Did you hear something? Amir al-Mu'mineen, he says, yes. The Prophet then says to the Imam, Hafizd, did you memorize it? The Imam says, yes. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib says, yes, I memorized it. According to this narration, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib also hears Jibra'il. And this is what we mentioned when we spoke about Ghar Hira. The Prophet says, Oh Ali, you see what I see and you hear what I hear. Amir al-Mu'mineen hears the voice of Jibra'il. The Prophet says, have you memorized it? Go and teach it to Bilal. And subhanAllah, this is another virtue and another merit that was usurped from Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. It was Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib who taught the adhan to Bilal. But according to other schools, no, it was Abdullah bin Zayd. So this is yet another merit of Amir al-Mu'mineen that was uh, stripped of him. There's a narration from Imam al-Sadiq where he speaks, and I'll just mention uh, the, the first line of the narration. قَالَ كَانَ طُولُ حَائِطِ مَسْجِدِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ قَامَ Imam al-Sadiq, he says that the wall of the masjid of the Prophet was not very tall. It was qama, meaning it was the height of a man. You know, about five, about five, six, about six feet tall. The height, the height of the wall of the masjid was about six feet, we can safely say. فَكَانَ يَقُولُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ لِبِلَالٍ إِذَا دَخَلَ الْوَقْتُ يَا بِلَالٍ أُعْلُ فَوْقَ الْجِدَارِ وَارْفَعْ صَوْتَكَ بِالْأَذَانِ The Prophet would say to Bilal, O oh Bilal, when it's the time of Adhan, climb the wall and recite the Adhan so your voice can echo and reverberate through Medina and so, that, so people can... Uh, gather and pray jama'ah. So the Prophet would actually instruct Bilal to climb the wall of the of the masjid and recite the adhan. So that's with respect to the construction of the masjid of the Prophet Now the second thing that is mentioned in the seerah at this juncture in the, the life of the Prophet is the pact of brotherhood. If you recall, this is the second pact of brotherhood that we are mentioning. So, in the life of the Prophet, the, the mu'akhat, the, the pact of brotherhood, was established on two occasions. The first pact of brotherhood took place in Mecca, about a year before the hijrah. And historians have actually mentioned who was paired with each other during this pact. 
So of course, the Prophet ﷺ, he pairs himself with Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. Hamza was paired with Zayd ibn Haritha. Abu Bakr was paired with Umar. Uthman was paired with Abdul Rahman ibn Awf. Zubair was paired with Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Ubaid ibn Harith was paired with Bilal. Mus'ab ibn Umair was paired with Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Abu Ubaida was paired with Salim. Sa'id ibn Zayd was paired with Talha. Now, what you notice from, the, from these groupings is that a number of them, on a number of occasions, the Prophet pairs someone of noble lineage with someone who is a slave or a former slave. You know, the example of Hamza. Hamza is from Bani Hashim. He's one of the nobles of Quraysh. And he's paired with Zayd ibn Haritha, who was a slave and he was the adopted son of the Prophet. So often, so the Prophet wanted to shatter these these notions of social class. What united everyone was the bond of faith. Now the purpose, the purpose of this pact, the pact that took place in Mecca before the Hijrah, was to, so the purpose of the pact of brotherhood in Mecca in particular, was to fill the familial void that conversions created as tribal support was lost. Now when when these companions convert to Islam, in many cases they are disowned by their own tribes. They are excommunicated by their clans. They no longer have the support of a tribe. So to make them feel this sense of belonging, that you still have protectors, that you still have caretakers and guardians, the Prophet ﷺ, he creates this pact of brotherhood as a replacement, to replace the, the tribal support that they once had. And what's particularly interesting is that these bonds, the bonds of brotherhood, entailed inheritance. So for instance, if Hamza were to pass away, Zayd ibn Haritha would inherit him and vice versa. If Mus'ab ibn Umair passes away, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas would inherit. So the pact of brotherhood was, was, wasn't just symbolic. It had real uh, implications. And one of the implications was that they would inherit from one another. And the presence, and if, when, if, if you look at this list, the presence of Mus'ab ibn Umair uh, indicates that this was at least one year before the Hijrah. Because if you recall from our previous episodes, we mentioned that the Prophet had sent Mus'ab ibn Umair to Medina to propagate and to teach the, the new converts, to teach them Islam. And he was leading prayer and teaching them Quran. So the fact that he's, his name is mentioned among the, uh, those who were paired means that this pact of brotherhood took place at least a year before the hijrah of the Prophet. So the first pact of brotherhood took place in Mecca. 
Now the second, there was a second pact of brotherhood. And this occurred in Medina a few months after the Hijrah of the Prophet. Some say between five to eight months after the Hijrah. Now the following pairs were recorded. So again, the Prophet and Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib are paired. And they are the only ones who were paired in Mecca and in Medina. The Prophet shuffled, uh, shuffled others around. In, in Mecca, in Medina, again, the Prophet takes Ali ibn Abi Talib as uh, his, uh, his brother. And what he does, the Prophet, he pairs the Muhajireen with the Ansar until everyone is assigned a brother. And Amir al-Mu'mineen sees that he's alone, that the Prophet had not assigned a brother to him. And this is where the Prophet says to Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, Ya Ali, ادَّخَرْتُكَ لِنَفْسِي I have reserved you for myself. فَأَنْتَ أَخِي فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرِ You are my brother in this life and the hereafter, and you are to me as Harun was to Musa. So the Prophet, he pairs himself with Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, the elder brother of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, was paired with Mu'adh ibn Jabal. Now, what's noteworthy here is, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is in Habasha. He's in Abyssinia. Which means, and he arrives back, he comes to Medina in the seventh year after the Hijrah, as we will discuss. This show, the fact that his name is mentioned here means that the pact of brotherhood wasn't just this temporary strategy. This was an enduring brotherhood that continued through the Medini uh, phase of the Prophet's life. Meaning that the, these, this pact of brotherhood was binding. It was continuously binding throughout the Medini period. So Ja'far is paired with Mu'adh ibn Jabal. Abu Bakr is paired with Kharij ibn Zuhair. And then the list goes on. Uthman is paired with Aws ibn Thabit. Az-Zubayr ibn al-Awam. He's paired with Salama ibn Salama. Talha is paired with Ka'ab ibn Malik. Abdul Rahman ibn Awf is paired with Sa'id ibn al-Rabi'i. And Abu Ubaidah is paired with Sa'ad ibn Ma'adh. Now what you see here is what the Prophet does during the second pact of brotherhood is that he tries to ensure that the Muhajireen are paired with the Ansar. Because the Muhajireen, the emigrants, they are, you know, they've come in many cases to Medina empty-handed. They need support. They need homes, they need, they need shelter, they need food, they need financial assistance. So the Ansar were paired with the Muhajireen, and this was uh, what the Prophet wanted. He wanted the Ansar to look after the needs of the emigrants. Mus'ab ibn Umair is paired with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, Ammar ibn Yasir is paired with Hudayfa. Abu Dhar is paired with Al-Mundhir ibn, ibn Amr. Salman is paired with Abu Darda. And Bilal is paired with Abu uh, Ruwayha. 
Now, some have mentioned up to 160 pairs. Others have mentioned 40. But what we know for certain is that all of the muhajireen, all of the emigrants, were paired with a local. And this makes sense because the, you know, the emigrants are essentially refugees. They are the ones who need that support from the local Muslims who are the Ansar. There are also reports that mention that the pact, the covenant, was formed between women too. So women were also paired. And some narrations mention that Fatima al-Zahra was paired with Umm Salim. She's one of the, the women of the Ansar. Now, what was the purpose of this pact? So if the purpose of the the pact in Mecca, if the purpose of the pact in Mecca was to was to to give the Muhajireen a sense of support because they had lost their tribal support, what was the purpose of the pact of brotherhood in Medina? Now, as many of you know, the Prophet did not want a society that was divided based on socioeconomic statuses. One of the the aims of the Pact of Brotherhood was to create an atmosphere of equality. An atmosphere where inna akramakum indallahi atqakum. The Prophet also wanted to ensure that the poor Muslims, who were mainly the muhajireen at this point, would receive the financial assistance that they needed to get on their feet. There's a narration, it's mentioned in the tafsir of Ali ibn Ibrahim al-Qummi. The narration is uh, from the imams of Ahlul Bayt. أَنَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ آخَى بَيْنَ أَصْحَابِهِ That the Prophet, he established the pact of brotherhood between his companions. فَكَانَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ إِذَا بَعَثَ أَحَدًا مِنْ أَصْحَابِهِ فِي غَزَاتٍ أَوْ سَرِيَّةٍ this is amazing. This narration says that after the Prophet enacted the pact of brotherhood between his companions, whenever he would send one of his companions on a military expedition, that companion would leave the key to his house with his brother in faith that he was paired with. And the companion who was leaving for that military expedition would say to that companion, Take whatever you want from my house and eat whatever you want from my house. Meaning, in my absence, my house is your house. Now many of the muhajireen, many of the Muslims who were paired, they were too embarrassed to eat of the food that was in the home of the Ansar. So a lot of the food would get spoiled, it would rot, especially when some companions were traveling and the Prophet had sent them for some military operations. 
until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals an ayah saying that you are permitted to eat of what is in the homes of those who have given you their keys. So this is a reference to that bond of brotherhood. Those who were paired with each other, they gave each other the keys to their homes and they gave them the green light to eat and use whatever you need uh, that you find in the house. There's another narration where someone asks Amir al-Mu'mineen about the concept of abrogated and abrogating verses. You know, there are some ahkam that were temporary. There are some Islamic rulings that were legislated for a specific time, and then they were later abrogated. So it seems that someone had asked Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, you know, is there an example of abrogation in the life of the Prophet? So the Imam alayhi salam, he says, إِنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ That the Prophet, لَمَّا هَاجَرَ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ When the Prophet went on his hijrah to Medina, آخَى بَيْنَ أَصْحَابِهِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ The Prophet enacted the pact of brotherhood between the emigrants and the helpers and the Ansar, the Muhajirin and the Ansar. وَجَعَلَ الْمَوَارِيثَ عَلَى الْأُخُوَّ فِي الدِّينِ لَا فِي مِرَاثِ الْأَرْحَامِ Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, he says, when after the Prophet enacted the pact of brotherhood, initially inheritance was only based on brotherhood and faith. Meaning, companions would inherit from one another. So if the Prophet paired you with someone, you would inherit from them and they would inherit from you. Meaning, your children would not inherit. Your relatives would not inherit. Inheritance was only on the basis of brotherhood and sisterhood in faith. وَذَٰلِكَ قَوْلُهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَهَاجَرُوا وَجَاهَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أُولَٰئِكَ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يُهَاجِرُوا مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ وِلَايَتِهِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ So, the only ones who could inherit were the brothers and sisters in faith who were assigned to you. فَأَخْرَجَ الْأَقَارِبْ مِنَ الْمِيرَاثِ So initially, your blood family, your family would not, would not inherit. That was a privilege that was given to your brothers and sisters in faith who were assigned to you. So for example, Hamza, Hamza and Zayd ibn Haritha, let's say, assuming that if one of them were to die during this period, Zayd would inherit Hamza, not the children, not the family of Hamza, not the biological family of Hamza, and vice versa. And then the Imam says, فَلَمَّا قَوِيَ الْإِسْلَامِ This was the rule until Islam was strengthened. And then Allah revealed, النَّبِيُّ أَوْلَى بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَأَزْوَاجُهُ أُمَّهَاتُهُمْ وَأُولُوا الْأَرْحَامِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلَى بِبَعْضٍ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ إِلَّا أَن تَفْعَلُوا إِلَىٰ أُولِيَاءُكُمْ مَعْرُوفًا So th- there was a verse that was revealed that abrogated 
that ruling. And then after the revelation of this verse, where Allah mentions that family inherits from one another, this abrogated that law where only brothers and sisters in faith inherited one another. Now, I just want to mention a couple of practical lessons uh, that we can learn from, from this, uh, this phase in the seerah. Number one, as we, as we saw, brothers and sisters, the pact of brotherhood was never meant to be this temporary strategy. We, I mentioned that the fact that Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was paired with Mu'adh ibn Jabal indicates that this brotherhood continued, it endured through the Medani period. Meaning the Prophet always wanted Muslims to look after one another as if they were family. So this spirit of brotherhood was there and the Prophet wanted it to endure through uh, even after the initial years uh, upon arriving in Medina. So, and this is especially important when we think about how we treat converts today. You know, unfortunately, when people join the religion of Islam, they're, they're, they're shown that support for a short period of time. They're embraced, they're welcomed by the community. But after a few months, after a few years, no one bothers to check up on them. No one bothers to keep in touch with them, to make them feel that they are cared for, that they are valued members of the community. So this spirit of brotherhood is an integral part. It's a critical factor in the strengthening of our communities. So whenever, any, whenever people would join Islam, the Prophet didn't just welcome them. The Prophet welcomed them and he also assigned them a brother or a sister in faith, someone who would be their caretaker, a point, a point of reference for them, a point person that they could refer to to help them uh, take care of their needs. We also learn from the, the incident of the, the pact of brotherhood that indeed Iman is the strongest form of brotherhood. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah 59 verse 9, He praises the altruism of the Ansar. Allah says, وَالَّذِينَ تَبَوَّءُ الدَّارَ وَالْإِيمَانِ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ Allah mentions that the Ansar, the residents of Medina, they loved the Muhajireen. They loved to receive the emigrants. And we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, do we love refugees when they come to our communities? especially when they come from war-torn countries and we have an opportunity to welcome them and to help them? Or do we see it as a burden? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He speaks about the Ansar, He describes this generous spirit that they had. They loved them. يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَا يَجِدُونَ فِي صُدُورِهِمْ حَاجَةً مِمَّا أُوتُوا When they give to the muhajireen, they don't feel any attachment to what they are giving to them. وَيُؤْثِرُونَ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَلَوْ كَانَ بِهِمْ خَصَاصًا 
and they prefer others to themselves even though, even though they may be afflicted with poverty. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here praises this spirit of generosity and altruism. And again, so if we want to receive this type of praise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we also need to have this attitude. We need to prefer the well-being of mu'mineen even over ourselves. Because we, we truly need to see them as our brothers and sisters in faith. Another lesson that we learn is that brotherhood and unity is not just rhetoric. You know, many of us were very good when it comes to, we're good at talking about unity and brotherhood. We speak about these concepts in the theoretical sense. You know, everybody loves the concept of brotherhood. But what does brotherhood actually look like? What does unity actually look like? The Prophet ﷺ took action. He implemented these concepts. He made them into a reality. He translated theory into action. He didn't just talk about brotherhood. He literally assigned people and made them brothers and enacted a sort of social contract where Muslims were required to look after one another. And then finally, we learn the, the wisdom of the gradual application of Islamic laws. And this shows us how, how gentle Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, how wise the messenger is. The Prophet doesn't just bombard his community with, with the laws. You see the adhan is gradually introduced, salah is gradually introduced, the prohibition of alcohol is gradually introduced. And we also need to apply the same approach when we want to teach Islam. We shouldn't bombard our families and our communities with too much information. We have to take a very a step-by-step approach. We have to take into consideration where we are as a community, what our challenges are, and we need to introduce uh, Islamic teachings in a way that is gradual and in a way that will be well-received. And we also need to consider the capacity of our communities. With that, brothers and sisters, that concludes my, uh, my discussion uh, today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to having you join me uh, in our upcoming episodes of the life of Prophet Muhammad. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.